Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. My name is Joe Warner, and I've known Ultimate Performance founder Nick Mitchell for more than a decade. In that time, Nick's grown UP from a single personal training facility in London to a global empire of more than 20 gyms. Joe! Good to see you. Give me a hug, man. How you doing? Great to see you. You just disturbed my piano playing. Could you hear it from outside? I couldn't. Yeah? Come inside. Come on in. Hazzy, come. Got a friend for hey. you. He's gorgeous. Heisenberg. Named after the German chemist. Not breaking back. <laughs> I promise. I promise. Right, should we go? Let's do it. Since our first meeting, I've seen the extraordinary lengths Nick has gone to to create the world's only global personal training gym brand, and I've witnessed his relentless drive and determination firsthand. I've often been at the receiving end of it. He trained me for a body transformation challenge, and we've written a couple of books together. But I've never asked him where his complete conviction in his methods comes from, and I wanted to find out. Brought the shades all this way, I'm not going to need them, am I? No, it's, um... LA is an outdoor city as well. So, this... really hampers everyone's enjoyment. I also wanted his thoughts on how we can solve some of the biggest health issues we face, including childhood obesity and the mental health impact of social media. But first I wanted to know whether running a hugely successful global business had changed him, and discover while you can take the boy out of Yorkshire, can you ever take Yorkshire? out of the boy. You must pinch yourself. How can you not? Um, look, look at where you started, right? The first time I met you, basement gym in the city, Pool Street, one facility. How many trainers? I mean, you were training. You were training pretty much full time. Oh, uh, when you first met me, 2010, there were probably maybe 10 trainers. I mean, now we have 550 people all over the world in the business, not just as trainers. But this is beyond anything you could have possibly imagined, right? No, it's not. Why not? How can it not I've got, be? I've got big, I've got, I've got, um, I've got big, big expectations on myself, and I always change the goalposts. I've told you this before. I change the goalposts so often on myself that nothing I have ever done, genuinely nothing, feels like a big deal. There are milestones. For example, opening the first gym was a big milestone. Opening the first gym abroad in Hong Kong was a big milestone. The book that we did, the very first book that we did together, the Twelve Week Body Plan, that was an absolutely enormous buzz a book because I'd always wanted to write a book sure um, all my life I'd wanted to write a book every time I come close to hitting a goal I change the goalposts so is there ever any time for a moment of reflection to savor that moment of something or do you not allow yourself to get to that point before you've already redefined what the objective is I, I, I don't let myself get to that point but it's not conscious and I realized that uh, I probably should. I certainly should. You should always take time to smell the roses. And I, and I do my best to sometimes appreciate the fruits of my labors and I'm aware that it's giving me security with the kids. The reason I'm getting a different perspective though is, is age related. I'm 50 years old. 
the clock is ticking for me now. And because the clock is ticking for me now, my perspective, and this is a very, very recent thing with me, my perspective has changed just that little bit to, to go, okay, what is it that I actually want to do? Rather than just chasing, chasing growth, growing the business, chasing commercial success. It's never been about chasing money, chasing commercial success. Rather than doing that, do I take a different view? Do I figure out what do I actually want to do? What projects do I want to work on? What aspect of my life is going to give me the most fulfillment? For instance, spending a significant amount of time engaged with my kids. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing for me. So how do I do that? You know, the worst thing for me, I had a realization very recently. I was spending I, uh, Sunday with the children, with the family, and the truth of the matter is I wasn't there. I was right. physically there, but I was not emotionally or mentally present. So how do you redress that balance? How do you become mentally there as well as physically? Compartmentalize. You compartmentalize it. But you make that sound incredibly easy. I think that's something a normal. No, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> it's incredibly hard. Are you a good boss? Some people would say yes, and some people would say no. Some people would say I'm fantastic, and some people would say I'm terrible. Are you aware of the, the pressure and the demands that it might place on someone working for Nick Mitchell? Yes, yes. I am intimidating for them. I have an intimidating character for them. I have an intimidating physical presence to a lot of them. Um, I mean, you know what, again, I, I don't work well with everyone. I will tell anyone that comes to work for me that has dealings with me, if you can't take constructive, well-meaning criticism, we're not going to work. I don't work well with excuse makers, but no one should work well with excuse makers. Yeah. Right? So, it, it, I don't work well with people that can't take constructive criticism. If, if you send me an email and you spell independent with an A at the end, independent, right? I'm going to correct you. Now, if I say, you blithering fool, look at this stupid spelling mistake, but I don't, I, I would go, you know, don't mean, to, don't mean to nitpick. If I make a mistake, I want someone to tell me, because this is true. The people that have worked with me the longest, if I make a mistake, they feel comfortable telling me. That's, that, and, and people don't get that about me. It's just about standards. It's about standards. I, I want my business to be the best in the world at what it does. In order to do that, you've got to take the road less traveled. I was beginning to understand a little more about Nick's methods and motivations, but I was still struggling to see how someone who had built a globe-spanning business couldn't be proud of their achievements. I wondered how his childhood and upbringing in a small market town in the north of England had forged his character and moulded a man who believes in the relentless pursuit of excellence without ever needing to stop and smell the roses. When I last met you, first time I've ever got you in a pub, you weren't proud of yourself for what you'd built with Ultimate Performance. I'll caveat that slightly because you said you were proud of the careers and the opportunities you'd given people and you'd, you loved seeing some of your staff rise from very, very junior to senior global positions now. Mm -hmm. but I'm really interested in looking at why you don't feel proud of yourself and where that comes from because it's such an impressive achievement and you know this is me being nice to you right don't get don't get yeah, too I, used to it yeah um but that that voice in your head that doesn't give you that second to or that minute or however long to appreciate it is it is that voice saying what's the point what, what's the you, point in feeling in the feeling finish is that is that voice saying what you've done isn't special or is it saying what you've done isn't good enough. So I think there's a really big distinction there between how you can ever be satisfied with, with what you've done and what you've achieved. It could always be better. By that spin, you could say it's not good enough. 
Um, but I'm not there, I'm not sat there thinking, you loser, right? So it's not that. How much of that mindset comes from growing up? Because the reason I say that is I know from conversations we've had, you know, on the gym floor when you've been training me or, or whenever, is that you're, if you got 99 out of 100 in a test, your dad would say, why didn't mm -hmm. you get 100? Yeah. It's not good enough. Yeah. Is there a memorable moment where your dad did give you praise? And, and how did that make you feel? Because when you're not getting it, as you said, it can be incredibly meaningful. You know, you know, I didn't live for praise, no. I didn't live for praise from anyone else. I didn't live for, if I'd lived in praise from my parents, um, and this, you know, I don't mean this the way it sounds, I would have been waiting for, I'd still be waiting. I'd still be waiting. Um, so my, my life has not been about seeking praise. It, it, okay, maybe it has, but it's only been about seeking praise from myself. So what can I do to make myself proud? What can I do to make me feel, ah, you know, you've contributed, you've done something. You've done something worthy. You've, but, you've, you've lived up to your potential. But a lot of people who grow up in, in an environment where they're not getting praise, they then pivot 180 and they seek external validation the whole time. That's never been a consideration. No. You've never wanted to do anything. And no. you can say that hand on heart. No. Um, what about bodybuilding? But, but here, but remember something so about the way I grew up. So I didn't get praise, but I didn't get broken down either. And in actual fact, what I got from every single person around me growing up was, Nicholas, if you work hard, you can do anything that you want. My dad had his own small, him and my mum, but successful business. Lovely for the camera, right? <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. We'll carry on talking. So, my dad had his own small but successful business. Gosh, just one. Make it last. Where was it? Mate, you're frozen on camera. You're frozen on camera. No, there Nothing. it is. Oh, it's there. Oh, he's gonna do another. That's a small one. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I was never praised, but, but, but you I was taught, you're never ever too important to pick up the shit, but I was always told, if you set your mind to anything, and my school taught me this as well, and I was at the same school for 10 years, if you set your mind to it, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve in life. You want me to take him, yeah? That makes sense? Yeah. But, and I know this from previous conversations as, as well, when you set up the business, what was the advice your dad gave you? Oh, don't do it. Okay, but that's, my, okay, that's a different story. My, my dad, because my dad is cautious, my dad's way of showing love is to look at the worst case scenario so why, for his why, two sons. Why did he say don't do it? Because, because that's my dad, because my dad is risk averse. Um, but what was he worried about? My, my, look, my father- You wouldn't my, make any money. Oh, I mean, my father has opposed every meaningful decision in my life of greater significance than buying a mid-priced, a mid mid-sized car. No exaggeration, and same with my brother. And, it, and it's... So does that come from him trying to protect you? Yeah, it comes from trying to protect, yeah. Didn't he say when you had the idea to start Ultimate Performance, no one will make any money from lifting weights? Oh That's... yeah, my dad said to me long before that, no one ever makes money from weight training, lad. That's my dad. My dad said that to me, but my dad said that to me before I was doing it. But he, if I said, I did not tell them when I was becoming a personal trainer, because they would have said, why do you want to do that? That's not the right job, that's not a proper career. All valid, by the way, all valid. 
doesn't have social cachet, prestige. Compare it to being a lawyer or a banker or something like that, right? It's, it's not. So all this money gone on my education, all this education, and they go, what's the point of it? It's valid. So I kept it quiet until I was in men's health the first time. And then when I was in men's health the first time, with Wesley, that thing I did with Wesley, yeah. and uh, I, I must have sent them it or told them I'm in it, and then they bought it. And it was a four or five page feature. And you know, my dad's comment, <laughs> and it's true, was, well, you know, Richard Branson would have got himself more in that, wouldn't he? That's how certain people see things. At the end of the day, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So what do they say now? Now you've got 20 odd gyms. Yeah, now they say they're very proud. But I still might discuss the business. I might, I might say, and anything I say about the business, if I have a business discussion and I bring it up to my dad, anything I say, he'll, he'll take the opposing view. Right. I'm gonna sell. Oh, what do you wanna sell for? I'm not gonna sell. Why do you, you know, you should be selling, cashing out. That kind of thing, right? And then when did you get to the point where you can kind of take that tongue in cheek and not let it affect you? Because I've known you for a while. You've definitely mellowed over the last 10 years since I've known you. It's called you. declining testosterone levels. <laughs> Whatever we want to call it. When was the moment where it might have stung a little bit, but you kind of let it go, you know, it's water off a duck's back. Was there a moment or has it been it's, a gradual? It's, it's a gradual process. It's just a gradual process of maturing, under, we, you're, a, you're a relatively new father, right? You've got a yeah. two-year-old. Um, you will continue to appreciate your parents whilst also having a more of an open eye to the faults of your parents than you've ever had before over the next few years with your son. No question. So you learn to appreciate them and you learn to take the rough with the smooth and no one is perfect. I endeavor to not make the mistakes that my parents made with me but I also am convinced that there are things that my parents did with me that I haven't nailed in the same way with my own kids. So how is your parenting style similar or different from how you were brought up? You I would am, give tough love, I imagine, but you're yes. gonna give your kids a hell of a lot more. So I'm, I'm affectionate. I'm physically affectionate. I will tell my children I love them. Um, I really work hard on not Fuck! <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles, right? I'm wide awake now. And what do you do about that? What do you do about that? You can't get in a, like, for me, that's so difficult walking away from that. So difficult. Like, I, like I'm, I'm like, but what do you do? What's the best bit of advice you got from your dad and, and also from your mum? Were there two bits of advice that stick out? No. Nothing? Zero advice. All about example. All about example. So, my parents gave me an enormous amount of stability. I knew, I knew that if something went wrong, they might, they might be there to go, oh, I told you so, yeah? but they'd also have my back. Right. 
While his father was a hugely influential role model on a young Nick Mitchell, another big influence was a bodybuilder by the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I wanted to know just how big an impact the Austrian Oak had had on Nick, both personally and professionally. I want to talk about how you got into bodybuilding. Growing up in Leeds, no real information around that kind of training. It was very, very new. How did you get into it? Where was that spark or that passion for lifting weights? Where did that come from? You mean like the, the origin story? Yeah. Uh, my dad, when I was 12 years old, or before I was 12, came back from uh, a business trip in America with a kind of a magazine that had Arnold Schwarzenegger on the front as Conan the Destroyer. It was holding, a, it, was, it was kind of like this holding a sword. Uh, I took one look at it and I thought, that's what a man should look like. And I was, I was bitten from there. I then bought Arnold's autobiography, Arnold at the Education of a Bodybuilder, took it to school, which was a big mistake because my school was a massive 1,200 boys, only boys, so it was Lord of the Flies. So my nickname was Arnie until I was 18. Right. Until I was 18, right? I took it from there. I trained at home for a little bit. As soon as I was 14, old enough to go to a local gym, I went to a local gym in a small town called Ilkley. After about, that changed hands. So after about a year, the woman who took it over, I'd still like to see her again, uh, kicked me out for training too hard. I kid you not. What did, that, what did that look like? Making too much noise, throwing weights around? What did she... No. Bad example, training too hard. I wasn't making noise. I was training hard. Right. Yeah. I wasn't... No, I wasn't shouting and screaming. I was 14, 15. Okay. Right? In, so, a, in a small gym. Right. Just didn't, didn't like it. So then when I was 16, and I had the time and I could, uh, me and Joe Holstead, we started to go to a gym called Phoenix in Bradford, which was a proper hard bodybuilding gym, proper hard bodybuilding gym. And, and everything went from there. Were well, you not intimidated as a young man walking into an no, environment? No, I don't remember being so. And we were really different because we went to Bradford Grammar, we went to the posh school and this was not a posh place at all. Um, no, no, people were all right. When I first went to Muscleworks in London, I walked in, I saw a couple of guys getting ready for the British Championships, looking very, very lean, very big and very mean. And I walked around the corner of the, the old gym and there were these dumbbells that went up to 180 pounds. Couldn't lift them, obviously, but I thought, but I wanted to. And I thought, okay, I'm home. This is where I need to be. And, and, and for it, everything went from there. A lot of people who've had huge success in bodybuilding, fitness, physique, whatever you want to call it, a lot of them have admitted that they got into it in the first place because of an insecurity. And certainly I went to the gym for the first time because I didn't like the shape of my body, maybe, and because I wanted women to find me attractive. Okay. Was that a motivation for you? No, not at all. Not at all. I wanted to be Arnold. So there was her, I never... I was, I was 12. I saw Arnold and I thought that's what I want to look like. I bought bodybuilding books. I would go to the local market in Skipton, secondhand magazines from the 70s, pretend they were from my dad because I was embarrassed. Um, no, I just wanted to look like that. So there was, was a never tall, a moment... Because no. you were a tall, skinny guy no, though, right? What happened to me to my eternal frustration was I, I turned into an etiolated bean sprout. I was 12, tall, normal, tall kid, big boy. By the time I'm 14, I'm six foot one. Right. And I just was, you know. But you were skinny, so did that I not make you? I wasn't skinny, I was lanky. Right. I was lanky. My brother would call me giraffe and I would chase him around the house because it would drive me, <laughs> it would drive me mad. But so, you know, lanky hurt as a word to me until I'm well into my 20s, and in my 20s, I'm 280 to 320 pounds, and still lanky hurts. So, but that, that's my question about insecurity. But, but already, but no, no, because I was already, because I was already into it. Right. That was a frustrating thing. 
I right. became lanky whilst wanting to become thicker and bigger. Okay. So no, it was for me, it was purely, I wanted to be a bodybuilder. I wanted to look like that. It wasn't done for girls. I wanted anyone, I, I went way past what would have done for girls. Yeah. So definitely it wasn't about girls. Did you want to be a professional bodybuilder? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to be Mr. Olympia. If I'm going to do something, I want you to be the best. So at which point did you realize that- After you... competing and realizing that what I had to do in order to be as good as I could be, I still would not be as good as I wanted to be. For what reason? Genetics, it's a beauty contest. It's how you put together. You, you are born a professional bodybuilder. You do not become a professional bodybuilder. You've got to put the work in, right? Sure. And, and part of it is putting the work in. I was born to put the work in, but from a beauty contest perspective, I'm six foot three. Six foot three bodybuilders are, are, are very, very, very rarely six foot three. So how much did, in those days. How much did that hurt, that realization? Was it sudden? Was it, was it just hit you like a, a, a lightning bolt that you weren't going to be able to do it? Um, it was a steady and fast realization upon, upon looking at my pictures from contests and, and seeing just what I looked like dieted down and, and figuring out, okay, I can put muscle on. I can put a lot of muscle on. I've got the genetics to put muscle on, yeah. but it just doesn't flow. You know what? You know what? No. You know, I was told by someone that knows, you know, with, with a handful of years more of very hard work, um, I could maybe become top three in the British Heavyweight Championships as it was at the time. I, I think that's probably true, but I couldn't have got any further, no matter what, because I'm just not put together that way for it. All right. So when were you first, or did you become aware of steroids and other performance enhancing drugs? Because as a young 12 year old, seeing that picture uh, of Arnold, I oh, imagine you oh, thought oh, that was real. Oh, probably at 14 or 15. And my goal at 14 or 15 was to become the, the first steroid free Mr. Olympia. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, the, wish, the wishful thinking and naivety of a, of a young teen, right? Can you remember when you did first become aware of it? No, no. The magazines, reading in the magazines, the magazines will talk about them. The magazines would say things like, they're gonna kill you, they don't work. Um, and then eventually the magazine started to say, well, actually they do work, but they're gonna kill you. And then it changed to, well, they're, you know, they work and they're not that good for you, but they're not gonna kill you. So and, and now things have changed because now they do kill people because people take so much. You see a ton of guys my age, older, younger, they can't let it go when they need to let it go. And is they that can't why stop juicing and, and then in their 40s and 50s they've got real problems. Because there's a number of people you and I both know who have, have died at a relatively young age because uh -huh. of heart-related issues. Uh -huh. Is this part of the problem? They just cannot accept yeah, not being stop. that yes, guy? Yes, of course it is. Because the steroids make you feel like Superman, right? Who wants, doesn't want to feel like Superman? How can some people walk away and others not then? Well, it, what is it about Being mentally them? strong. Having more to you. Dorian Yates. Dorian Yates was the ultimate robot. Six-time Mr. Olympia, the most successful British bodybuilder has ever been, and ever will be, in all honesty. And Dorian, um, Dorian had a few crises, really, in his post-bodybuilding days. Partying, this, that, and the other. Yeah. And then he's had to kind of find his version of spirituality. And I genuinely believe this guy, of course he wants to be lean and healthy, this guy couldn't give two shits about the size of his muscles. There are a lot of guys of Dorian's era successful or unsuccessful, they can't let it go. They can't let it go the way Dorian has let it go. So Dorian is the ultimate example of someone letting it go. You've got to replace it with something, right? Yeah. What do you replace it with? Steroids are so much more prevalent now than they would have been when, when you were a young man. Yes. And you see 
on social media, reality TV, whatever it is, a lot of young guys- yeah, Tons, 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 yes. Are using steroids recreation, recreationally alongside other drugs, alongside booze. What are these guys doing to themselves by taking performance enhancing drugs, but not doing it the, 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 the smart way, if we can label it that, for a very defined, clear purpose. Just doing it because they want to look a little bit better because they're going to Marbella they're this put, summer. They're putting themselves on a roller coaster, but it's the same with bodybuilders as well doing it, to be honest with you. So my issue, as I see it, with young guys of any sort taking steroids, I'm, I am opposed to everyone taking steroids. I'm opposed to it. Not because I think relatively small doses of steroids will kill you but for two real main reasons. One reason is I don't trust the authenticity of what most people can get, right? But you can be in America and you can get it from your doctor. So that's it, that, that, you, can, you can discount that. Yeah. But in the UK, I don't trust it, right? It's bathtub drugs, literally brewed up in a bathtub half the time. So it's young guys not knowing what they they're, know they're doing, what they're not knowing what they're, they're taking. taking. There's incredibly crazy doses that are considered the norm, but, but that's very bad. But let's say taking moderate doses. I never saw this in bodybuilding gyms. I'm not saying it wasn't there, but I never saw it. The issue that I've seen is how it changes people's personalities. It changes their personalities, because it, and especially insecure young men, because they go from being insecure, maybe a little bit lower in testosterone naturally, to all of a sudden, boom, they think they're Superman. Because you can chew iron and spit nails. Right. And their personalities change. They can't handle it. They, the way they react around women, I've seen them. They go from being the politest of guys to being handsy in the extreme, right, for instance, right? They can't handle it. So it brings out the absolute worst. Aggressive, aggressive. They think they're Superman. They become delusional. And then when they stop, you go from here. Everybody goes from here to here. But if you've got this little man inside you, right, you go from here to here and they get depressed. You can't cope with seen, it. I've seen them crying in the corner of a room. Someone you know, a big guy, the guy that can't write, crying in the corner of a room because he's off his steroids. So how- And their personality becomes so wrapped up in this that when it goes, they feel like shit and they're depressed and all they do is go, I, I can't wait to get back on. I can't wait to get back on. So is it, a, is it a complete change of personality no, or is it- not a... for everyone. It is for some people. There are some people that can handle it and there are many, many that can't. And for me, why, why risk it? If, you're going to, if you need it to compete in your sport, that's your decision between you and your conscience and you and God and you and your coach and you and the rules. Because if you are a cheater, but people go, oh, bodybuilding is cheating. It's not cheating, because they all do it. Yeah. It's not cheating, Yeah. right? It's not cheating. Not cheating to me, but it's not, for me, it's just not worth it. It's so, just not worth it. So what's your, what's your advice then for a young guy who might be watching this, who's thinking about it? You because... don't need it to build a, a good physique. What do you consider a good physique? If your aspiration is Arnold, suck it up, you need it. If your aspiration is to look well, the bodybuilders were not really using steroids in the 60s, okay? And what they were using was very small. I mean, the odd American might have got it. You can look at little pictures of Reg Park from the early 60s. This guy was fucking massive, yeah. right? In the early 60s. Later, he's maybe different when he was in the 70s. This guy was massive. This guy was amazing. There's the, the silver era, bronze era bodybuilders. Some of these guys looked amazing. Gymnasts look amazing even now, right? Um, Eddie Baruta. You can take pretty short pictures of Eddie. 
80s, 100%, never touched anything like a steroid. Never will, never would. You show some pictures of him and people will think he's on steroids. So you can build that physique, but it doesn't come fast. Whereas the steroid gains come fast and go fast, right? This is the thing. They come fast and they go fast. For the young guys sitting there watching these superstars thinking, I, I should look like that, I have to look like that, otherwise I'm not a proper man. Surely if there's an acceptance or an awareness that these guys have used something to get there, it takes the pressure off an entire generation of young men. Yeah, but it's not going to happen. But, but how is that different from the fake asses, the fake boobs, the nose jobs, the lip jobs, the filters? How is that any different? How, how, how are the Kardashians not a thousand times worse, right? With their Photoshop, their silicon asses. I feel that there's a greater awareness that those kind of things are going on. I think for the general person on the street, they don't know who's using and who's not. They can't no, tell the I, difference. I, 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 this is an opinion. I disagree. I think that there is. But that's because you so can spot awareness. someone from 20 yards. No, and there's know so much awareness of the Kardashians and their photoshops. And yet, and yet they're a billion dollar industry. One of, the Ken, one of the Kylie or Kendall Jenner, if you look at what she used to look like versus what she looks like now, the, the fakery that's going on and how it's messing up young girls, this is much worse. What do we do about it as a culture? Because you've got two there's young nothing, kids. You've got a boy you and a girl do. growing up there's in a social you can media do, age. Other than edu well, you keep how kids, do you protect you them? You keep kids away from social media as much as possible. And what you do is when you see it, you don't walk away from it, it's back to standards again. When you see it, you, you, you know, when you see something, I've got a 12 year old girl, I'm now briefly, whenever is relevant, giving her lessons in, in what boys are gonna be like, right? Not laying it on thick, gotta be realistic. She likes boys, she's interested in boys, gotta be realistic about what it is, but it's also just, you know, laying that on. With social media ubiquitous in our society, how worried is Nick that so many adults and their kids use it as their main tool to communicate as well as their primary source of news, information and advice? Social media, there's tons of studies that show it's really not very good for our mental health and well-being. I know first-hand experience, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced the same. How worried are you with two kids, you know, one in their teenage years, one's about 12, to move into yeah, their teenage years? How worried are you about what the exposure to social media is doing to them, their sense of self-esteem, their sense of where they belong in the world and what they should be doing with their lives? I'm, I'm less worried about my son because him and his friendship group are just not into that so much. Okay. Um, I also spend so much time with him that I, I feel I can give him the small steers on these things. I spend a bit less time with my daughter. Her interests are less aligned with mine as well, right? Um, I think that girls are more susceptible to it as well. They also use things like Snapchat as a communication tool. Um, so specifically, I would not allow them to have TikTok. Nope, no chance, because I've seen, uh, there is a, there's a YouTube channel that I recommend everyone to go to called Ghost. And Ghost has an extremely interesting um, documentary on TikTok. The algorithm in TikTok for TikTok in China, it serves STEM, it serves science, it serves education stuff. The, the algorithm in the US or the West for TikTok is utter poison. So what are you worried about? The algorithm or the ownership of TikTok? The algorithm because of the ownership. Right. Yeah? So it's poison. I also think that social media in general is poison for children, for everybody. But, but you know, children have more malleable minds, right? So well, especially with your daughter, and she's going to be coming to that age 
where social media plays a, a bigger part in her life. When you're when she's seeing celebrities who are having work done, liposuction, lips, bums, boots, no, whatever just, it yeah, is. You know what? It's, it's more. It's, filters, it's more insidious. Photoshop. It's more insidious than that. It's it's their friends who will post the pictures. Where and, and you know you can use filters. I mean, look, you can use video filters now. There's a video filter. I can't remember what it's called. Glamour or model or something. I don't know if you've seen it. It, it doesn't change men as much as it changes women. And the way it changes women is absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And it's a simple filter that anyone can apply. I think it's on, I don't know if it's Snapchat filter or TikTok. It's, it's crazy. So, so this is going to mess up everybody because it's gonna mess up the people who are doing it to themselves because you're gonna put this filter on yourself. You're gonna look, you're gonna look like your glamorous, your glamorous twin sister that never existed, you know? Your lips get plumped up, your skin gets smoothed out, your nose gets smaller, your forehead gets smaller on a girl, right? Your hair becomes a bit more lustrous. The eyebrows might become a bit, a bit better. So the eyes will get larger and whiter, whites of the eyes. And all these things, and then you look at your real, your real self and you look ugly in comparison. This is dangerous. But this it's is dangerous all... for everybody. It's not just dangerous for my children. My children are in a better position than most people to deal with it because um, my wife has no time for social media and she will be quite scathing of that. And I make it very, very clear that comparison is the thief of joy. I'll tell them this. I'll, I'll be very vocal in telling them we used to have an expression keeping up with the Joneses and everybody, you know, people, people were sent mad by their neighbors. Yeah. Well, now we can be sent mad by a million different people all over the planet. So I, I've really always been negative to them about social media, whilst also knowing that it's a bit unrealistic for me to have like a blanket ban because they use, again, Mia, you, Mia uses Snapchat as communication tool right. with her friends. I, I know this. How much do you blame the influencers and the influencer culture for the world in which we now live when it comes to living online? I don't blame it. I don't blame the influencers at all. The influencers are just a symptom of it. It's social media. Uh, we have allowed, and I don't think we had a choice, but we have allowed immense power and wealth to accumulate in Mark Zuckerberg's hands, right? And, and in the hands of people that control social media. Um, so it's social media companies. The social media companies have a responsibility, but they don't want to take on that responsibility. They'll do everything they can to fight that responsibility. We, we see that. Um, we see that all the time. I'm trying. I've got a mind blank now. We need to edit out this bit. What was the company? I was watching something on a company that's getting hammered for allowing. Oh, that's right. So, so a a, a similar example in a way. Although, although less mainstream, thankfully, is um, there's a Netflix or Amazon documentary on Pornhub. Right, yeah. And basically, Pornhub for years and years and years made, it's one of the top websites in the world, right? And for years and years, they had 30 people vetting a gazillion videos. So basically, any scumbag could upload anything. But if I see that, when I see that, I think any parent, it's incumbent on a parent to find a way to tell their children these lessons. So, so for instance, what you find, unfortunately, is stupid girls, stupid young girls, will be persuaded by idiot scumbag boys. Send me a naked video. Show you like me, send me a naked video. You know, if a guy sends a dick pic, if it's just a pic of his dick, it's hard, it's hard. I, I, by the way, I'm not endorsing sending dick pics, yeah? But if a guy sends a dick pic, ah, you know, 
really, right? If a girl sends a video of herself prancing around naked or she lets some guy take a video while they're having sex, because guys are scumbags. So I'm, I make sure my daughter is aware of that and I also make sure that my son is aware of that as well to, to, you know, to know what would happen if I, if I ever caught him doing anything like that. But how do you feel about the fact so many young people now, their heroes, their aspirations are social media influencers. Girls grow up wanting to be a Kardashian. Boys grow up wanting to be a Logan Paul or some other influencer like that who have skills, have tangible have assets. Has skills, he's an entertainer. But, Not for me or you necessarily, but he's an entertainer. But what about that general culture of growing up wanting Slow. to be famous rather than being... It's always been like that, Joe. It's always been like that. 20 years ago, the, the, the biggest aspiration for... Well, 15 years ago, the biggest aspiration for uh, young girls in the UK, Jordan. Right. I remember that at the time. Look at the car crash that she is. Sure, but that's all part of, of this kind of celebrity culture. So what about way. when you were a kid? People didn't want to be famous and they wanted to have careers. That's what's ah, changed. They wanted to be footballers. They wanted to be pop stars. But they that, had as much chance of being a footballer or a pop star as to do a They had less chance. I wanted to be Arnold. So again, that was, Arnold was my influence. It's different. We've got people... I, I'm not a fan of social media. I think it is a cancer. Even I, even I, if I go through my Instagram feed, which I basically you know, do once in a blue moon. I do if I'm super bored or annoyed. No, let me take a step back. If I go on my Instagram feed, it's when I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit listless, aimless. Right. I only do it at night, never during the day. I'll do it in the evening, you know, everyone's asleep. I'm kind of, I don't want to go to bed yet. I don't want to read something. And I'll go, I'm not looking at anything bad. And I'll go through my feed a little bit and I feel bad. I don't feel good doing it. Or I go on Twitter. So I go on Twitter to kind of keep on with what's going up in current affairs and the news. Uh -huh. It provides a very useful service for me. But at the same time, it's doom scrolling. It's doom scrolling. But the world has gone this way. Do not tell me that the news, the news is fear porn. Yeah. If you want to know how the news is fear porn, we all know what they did during COVID. Perhaps COVID is controversial as a subject. I'll steer clear of it. They loved the fear porn of COVID to the point of when the pound was weakening against the US dollar recently, which currencies have weakened and strengthened from time immemorial, Sky News had a counter going on all the time, all the time, about the dollar, about the, you know, the call it, what to call it, cable. The, the... Yeah. Why? To just freak people out. They didn't, by the way, tell you, and of course what they didn't tell you in the UK was that the dollar was strengthening against every single currency. And all these currencies were, you know, the euro was plummeting and all this stuff. They don't tell you that because they want fear porn. So it's outrage and fear porn and clicks. You're a journalist. Social media has been the death of journalism. All that's left, all that's been left are clickbait. So does this make you positive or negative about the state of society over the next two, five, ten years? Does social media make me positive or negative? It's just how, how people think, how we're being served information, what people deem to be important, the... I'm pretty negative. Yeah, I'm ...divisiveness pretty negative. of politics. I, 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 I know I, I, that's always I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty negative. We used to be smart enough when we were kids. 
and I'm going to lump you in with yeah, yeah. at the same time as me, you know, 10 years difference. <laughs> but when we were kids, there were two things you were never supposed to talk about. Politics and religion with other people, right? What is, what is Twitter? What is Twitter? Yeah. Politics for sure, and a bit of religion. In America now, Even, even when Raymond, who's behind the camera here, when he was growing up, he won't remember this, I don't think that people would have talked about politics. I don't think it was a thing, right, Raymond? Right? Now, it's the only thing. And they suss you out based on your politics. Now, now, the intolerance of other views is, is absolutely incredible. Um, the worst thing that's happening in society now for me, there's lots of bad things in society, but this is a new thing. Right? This is not as bad as the homelessness you get in, in, in LA or any of these things, but this is a new thing. My son is at a nice private Catholic school, um, generally full of people, uh, you know, the people that go there, the families that they come from, um, not necessarily wealthy, not necessarily Catholic, okay. we're, not, we're not Catholic. Um, but, you know, they take a little bit more care than the average person might in their children's education. There's a lot of scholarships there. It's quite mixed people there. And what Roman's come back saying that he, he finds quite bizarre is they brag and try and one-up each other based on how little money their parents have. It's, so in other words, no one is bragging, my dad's got this big right. house, my mum's got this car, yeah. it's my house is smaller than your house, I've only got two bedrooms, oh, I've got one. And this is, this is uh, the South Park joke about Meghan and Harry come alive. Did you see the South Park right. episode? It's worth watching, right? South Park episode about Meghan and Harry, in it, there's a branding company, and the branding company goes, right, I'm gonna give you a personal brand. You are adventurous, sexy, athletic victim. You are rugged, quiet, formidable victim. So it, it's become currency to be a victim. The one debate I would like to get into, touching on social media, you just touched on now obesity, is the whole body positivity versus fat shaming. Now, I know these things aren't a black and white issue. What's your take on what should be done to address the underlying causes of obesity so we can actually help people if they want to lose weight and, and live longer? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is no one should be shamed for being obese. No one should be told, you are a loser, you are a failure, you are nothing. If someone has a drug issue, we don't tell them they're a failure and a loser. We don't try to break them down, do we? No. But we give them help and we tell them it's not right. Absolutely. The exact same thing should be done with obesity. Obesity, obesity oh, is extremely complicated, right? Because it's about the food that we eat and the lifestyle that we live. Obesity could be caused by simple, old-fashioned gluttony. You're not supposed to say that, but it's true. It could be one of the reasons why somebody gains well, weight. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it is, it is. You, you, you're not becoming obese. You, no one becomes obese unless they're a glutton, right? Gluttony meaning you're eating more food than you need. Gluttony meaning you're stuffing your face. Now, there are lots of reasons for why somebody might be a glutton, right? Many, many people who are obese are addicted physiologically to having a full stomach. This is a fact. 
something that is not talked about very often. So if you are physiologically addicted to having a full stomach, it doesn't matter whether right or wrong, you need help. You need help. You don't need condemnation. But here is the thing. And here's the thing that frustrates me and frustrates a lot of the fitness industry, that, that are there practically helping people day in and day out. I have seen thousands, and, well, I've seen thousands of obese people sort it out, and I've seen tens of thousands of overweight people sort it out. The worse the problem of being overweight, the more obese they are, the more they need that cold jug of water thrown in their face. Very often, when they come and work with us, they've done it to themselves already. Okay. They've had that wake-up call. Be it they can't play with their kids, they can't climb the stairs, they've had an accident, hey, hey, hey. they've had an accident. <laughs> they, you see, this is how you behave. <laughs> when the little dog barks, you just ignore him. Lesson for all of us, right? <laughs> um, they, they've had a shock, right? I have never met anyone who is comfortable in their own skin and obese who can fix it. You've got to have a recognition and a realization, this is going to kill me. They don't want you to say, they, they have this movement in the UK, healthy at every size. No, you can't be healthy at every size. So how dangerous- Bullshit, it's a lie. How dangerous is the body positivity movement then? It's extremely dangerous because you don't want to give people an excuse. You've got to go. You're not a bad person, right? You have intrinsic worth. Your intrinsic worth, your intrinsic value is not tied up in how your body looks like and in your body. But if you are obese, it increases your chances of all-cause mortality. For those who aren't sure what all-cause mortality means, it means absolutely anything and everything that can, that can kill you, there's a greater chance of it killing you if you're obese. So how do you feel when you see people or organizations come out and say that they're, that, that isn't true, for instance, that you can be healthy at any size. It's awful, but again, what is it? It's exactly what we were just talking about two minutes ago. We were talking about the hierarchy of victimhood. So now, oh, because, because we celebrate victims, skinny privilege is a thing. You're a skinny guy. You are a naturally skin, slim guy, right? You've got skinny privilege. Fuck you. <laughs> right? What a joke. What a joke. That's the problem. As the sun set on my time with Nick, his thought-provoking answers raised even more questions about how we overcome some of the biggest health issues we face today. What was crystal clear, however, is Nick's unshakable belief that the solutions to some of the complex and highly charged issues we discussed, childhood obesity, social media and mental health, and living in a cancel culture in which we feel compelled to tell people what they want to hear instead of the truth, will only be found through open and honest conversations rooted in empathy and established facts, and not through emotional or tribal responses based on nothing more than opinion.